This is a becoming creature. After a long wait, I am very happy to bring to you this episode. It was fraught with technical difficulties because people were connecting and disconnecting. And uh, the fact that there were four people um, meant that the editing was <laughs> a an interesting undertaking. And this is while I was moving into a new apartment and... Uh, doing a lot of traveling. So that's why there was such a delay. I thank you for your patience and for your understanding. And I hope you enjoy this special party episode featuring myself, Maybe Gray, Lithros, and Teddy Rackvelt. Here it is. Welcome to a new episode of A Becoming Creature. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with the magical Maybe Gray, Lithros the Scoundrel, and <laughs> Teddy Rackavelt the Rapscallion. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Happy to be here. So why don't we do a few short introductions instead of me going on and on about who all of you are? Um, if you don't mind starting, maybe Gray, just to say a little bit about who you are and what you're into, anything. Yeah, I'm a, a baby lawyer uh, by day and a, a wooey, witchy kind of person by night. I um, host a lot of talks at the Interintellect, uh, and I also co-host an astrology podcast with our friend Saddle Sood on Twitter. Um, so... That's that's the main stuff that's going on for me right now, other than baking in the hot sun. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Teddy? Who are you? What are you doing here? Uh, my name's Teddy. I'm a raccoon. Uh, I shill for the American Space Empire. Uh, I'm probably the resident skeptic of all things culturally post-rat, and uh, I write a satirical blog which no one should read if you don't want to be pissed off so 100 percent agree with that lithros <laughs> yeah i'm lithros i am an absurdist very serious person uh, i try to find the nexus between all things and then uh, rip it in half so nothing can ever make sense again and i'm pretty much interested in all of the above uh i have a law background. I'm, I'm not a practicing attorney, but I do teach law on the side. I am an IT professional, so I regret computers every day of my life. <laughs> and I have children, which informs a lot of my approach to the world, but probably not as much as it should. Mostly, I just like um, bothering people. And you pass the bar. I'm just thank just, you. Just yes. to mention that I I yeah I forgot to say that at the end of my podcast episode with Critter and we wrap recording and I was like oh crap like when you say you're not a practicing attorney people are just going to naturally assume you didn't pass the bar and that's yeah. why and I I forgot I wanted to mention it so I love you you for bringing <laughs> that up now and saving me my shame I did pass the bar it has nothing to do with that. 
<laughs> I could have gotten a legal job if I wanted, but I decided that 35 hour weeks and 23 hour, 23 vacation days a year was a sweeter deal than breaking my brain as a lawyer. As for myself, instead of introducing myself, I'll quote Mycelium Mage, who, referring to my new girlfriend, who I adore, wrote that being critter-pilled is becoming the type of guy who invests in building Twitter clout so he can pull the kind of women who swoon for Costco employees that moonlight as small-time internet podcasters. <laughs> That's that's incredible. Incredible. I read that. I just I went straight to heaven. I closed out of the app and I said that's it for today. So that that leads to my next question, which is I would like advice from all of you. Uh do you have any tips for winning a fist fight? <laughs> um how do you define winning, right? And and are there any limits to how far you're willing to go? Just just punishing someone thoroughly. So you don't want to like permanently injure them if you don't have to. If it happens on accident, then, oh, on accident. you know. Okay. I don't really have any tips for non-lethally winning a fist fight. Uh, oh. <laughs> there, there's a couple. I mean, kick them in the balls to start. If you can, look, you, look, the key to winning a fist fight is to hurt them really badly before they can hurt you. What about you, maybe? Any tips? Uh, I, I can neither instruct nor advise you, you look, to get you in scrappy. a fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, I am. It is not my nice. my field That's of expertise. There's the lawyer coming out. <laughs> I do have two two moderately helpful suggestions sure. in terms of you know it depends on how you define winning. But I've thought about this a lot, as all men do in their mm -hmm. spare time. <laughs> and uh, the the first idea I've always had is if you are willing to go this road victory doesn't have to be considered purely physical dominance. Uh, obviously, the intimidation factor is important. And one way you can intimidate someone very effectively is by being absolutely goddamn insane. Mm. Um, so you can just start shouting nonsense and all manner of gibberish. You can say about how like you once rode a penny to the zoo and spent all the afternoon with your little fairy friends as they hopped on your shoulders and introduced you to the animals one by one. And the person hears that, they're not going to want to fight you. There might be a lot of things they want to do, but fisticuffs won't be in the <laughs> list. And uh, the other suggestion is, you know, you just start winning the psychological battle by throwing out random vague enough to be applicable to anything cold reading style uh jabs at their past like uh she still thinks about you you know you could say that to a guy and she's gonna stop dead it's gonna be like really you mean it and so those kinds of things are a way to catch him off guard and you might be able to hit him while he's like remembering his lost love and he mm. won't see it coming so just a couple options uh something that's actually helpful is be careful if you're punching be careful when hitting the other person's face because you can break your hand on their jaw really easily what's a lot better is if you instead of coming in straight with your knuckles if you come in with the side with the side of your hand so the bottom of your hand like you're swinging you're swinging in a circular motion with the side of your hand and aiming at the side of their face that's a much better way to hit them on the jaw than with your knuckles ah thank you I'll definitely use all of this. It's called I, it's called uh, hammer fists and Krav Maga. Ah, 
thank you for for all of your wisdom. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. move on to my next relevant <laughs> question here, which is uh what is your best relationship advice for new couples? Maybe maybe you you can start. <laughs> This is where I imagined you were going the first time. I was very <laughs> um, I I think that <laughs> I th my experience of new relationships is that I get like kind of absorbed into like a co-living creature with one goopy horny mind, and. Um, I don't know. I guess my, my advice for new couples is to embrace that as much as you can and and try not to worry about if other people think you're crazy because you are crazy and that's fine. That's mm. what happens when you're in a new relationship. Yeah. So just like ride out the crazy, enjoy it as much as you can and then try to like when you realize the crazy has kind of, you know, ebbed out of that like insane first little honeymoon period um be like ready and excited to do the work of actually creating like a, a more stable relationship together but don't try to rush that just like recognize when that time has come and like be willing to to do the work to move on from the crazy times kind of like landing the plane you're like high <laughs> up in the air you gotta <laughs> gotta get grounded at some point yeah. without crashing in a fiery blaze <laughs> into a very tall building all I was saying was that a new relationship is like a new episode of Philosophers on Twitch playing Flight Simulator. <laughs> it's like all very beautiful mm. and you hope that it lands well <laughs> instead of crashing uh. as it sometimes does. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a beautiful image. Um, on that note, I just poured myself some scotch. I'm going to dedicate this scotch to Michael Kersey. Here's to you, Kersey, wherever to, you are. To Mike. He's on a plane right now, actually. Is it? Oh, yeah. I, I hope he lands. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my advice about a new relationship. When you're in a new relationship, there's that rush of emotion and you're thinking about the person constantly and you want to be with them all the time or if not with them communicating with them and getting to know them better and everything and, and there's so much reward built into that. However, although it's going to go against every instinct one might have, you should give yourself that time to yourself to dwell on the relationship and think about the relationship because you're forming that mental image of a person and you're super duper incentivized to have it form as, as the perfect person, especially if it's that good of a feeling, right? And you're going to mm -hmm. read a lot of things into their behavior and their words that are based on where you're coming from, which isn't wrong to do. But if you don't give yourself time to process what you're hearing and getting from them, then you're very likely to make a mistake in what you're reading. And it's only if you take a little time and let yourself not constantly experience that stimulus that your brain can pull back and say, hold on, let's be a little reasonable here. And I think it's just like learning an instrument where if you practice every day constantly, you never get a chance to actually improve and you'll hit a wall. And it's only giving your brain some time off the process in the background that you're going to actually break through to a new level. I think the same applies to a new relationship. You can't keep it constant 24-7. That's different for everyone. Some people can do that and they're fine. But I think for us thoughtful individuals, that's the advice I'd give. Very prudent. Any any thoughts, Teddy? 
Oh man, I'm a, I'm a, I think I'm by far the youngest person here, so my mm-hmm. advice may be not quite as wise. Um, I'd say a mistake that I have made in the past was um, not explicitly thinking this, but feeling that the uh, the initial rush of the relationship was going to solve issues with myself, mm. right? And so. Uh, it turns out importing another person into your life does not necessarily solve a lot of your issues. Uh, what ends up happening a good amount of the time is uh, it exposes those issues the longer you go in it, which is fine. Mm. And it's actually a, a really good effect of being in a relationship. You learn more about yourself. You get the opportunity to fix things uh, that need to be fixed because contrary to some modern thought you are not always perfect the way you are um but just be just, <laughs> just be aware just be aware of the fact that uh often it's going to expose the things that are going on with you rather than cover them up yeah it makes me think of like a, a massive star like the more massive a star is and i'm not a physicist so i might be wrong about about this but the more <laughs> massive it is like the faster it burns and the faster it dies and so it's kind of like moderating the fuel such that it is a uh you know like a like a furnace in your home and not mm. a furnace of your home <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know and, and so so trying to moderate that um but I did I did want some of your input because I was talking about this on Twitter and it got a lot of responses mm. and for anyone that doesn't know my friend recently did a 23andMe and found out that her father, for her like 36 years of life, was not her father. Hmm. And he did not know this. And so, and so they, yeah, she found this out via DNA. And I haven't updated this story on, on Twitter. I, I plan to uh, soon. But she met her biological father got all this, the story confirmed, met his kids, did this whole family thing. Somebody tweeted it on Facebook, not tweeted it on Facebook, posted it, posted it on Facebook. Yeah. They tweeted it on Facebook as people tend to do. And um, the information somehow got through the grapevine to her father, her, the, the father that raised her and fought in, in court battles uh, for custody and paid child support her whole life up until she was, you know, 18 or, or whatever age that goes to. And um, so I'll, I'll stop the story there for now. But, uh, but I just, <laughs> I was curious what you guys think about, you know, if you were in this situation, do you think you would tell your father if, if you did the 23 and me, would you be your meet your biological father? How, how, how do you think about this situation where, you know, the father that raised you, is um is not who they think they are they don't have the relationship to you that they think they have in some small part at least like oh the past that happened certainly happened as it is felt to have been experienced but from the perspective of of my friend it kind of changes everything like there there's a new branch to life that was not there previously so do you guys have any idea about whether one should or should not tell their father in this instance and and how you might handle this I uh I have trouble with this question. I grew up without a father. 
my dad died when I was four years old. Mm. So I have very few memories of him. And I can't really project myself into the mind of the kid because there just is an empty spot in my brain for what that father figure is like. Wow. And I do have kids. And I think to myself, like, would I want to know? My kids right. are five years old and three months old. I, I don't really know what it's like to raise a kid to adulthood and be have that many years of memories and investment in them. I mean, if my wife told me today that my five-year-old was not mine, I would probably be disappointed. <laughs> but I'm a weird person, so I don't really care about blood relation that much to begin with. And I care about who my daughter is as a person. And she's an awesome person, and I love her. And I would support her even if I found out she wasn't mine, regardless of what my wife lied to me about it has nothing to do with my daughter she didn't choose that right so uh i had when i read that thread i was like okay this person really loves who he sees as his daughter and who is his daughter in a lot of ways then you could tell them the truth and the result is he's still going to see her as his daughter he's still going to want that relationship with her care about her have all those positive memories but now all the other memories will be tainted with a little sadness because there's that sense of betrayal. A lot of people seem to think that knowing the truth about someone betraying you a few decades in the past was more important than avoiding all that pain and tinging all those memories. I don't really feel that way. I think there are times it's better to just bury the truth and let someone be happy mm. with their illusion that is still true enough in the ways that really matter. And I don't think blood is one of those ways. The question of the betrayal is important. And if they're still in a relationship with that person under those false pretenses, that's a problem. But I don't know that it's obviously worth giving them all that pain about their relationship with their child. Do you agree, Teddy? Um, so actually, this is funny because the subsequent story sort of bears out my first instinct when i when i heard this um mm -hmm. number one this is a, by the way you did twitter dirty on this one because this is a this is one of those topics that is just way too complex to have a, a conversation about on twitter at any meaningful length uh <laughs> so my first take is this is this is why technology is bad uh it allows us to, <laughs> <laughs> uh uh so you know transhumanists take the l uh and, and then my second uh and more serious point here is uh i think if you don't if you as the child don't care and have no interest in following up with your biological dad then let sleeping dogs lie right it doesn't it doesn't change anything about your life you just have another little factoid mm -hmm. that probably doesn't matter if you do have an interest in going to meet your, your biological father then i think it to avoid <laughs> literally to avoid specifically the situation which happened which was uh <laughs> your father accidentally yeah. learning about this fact from someone who is not you uh you you almost have to tell him because it's worse it's worse it's so much worse if he learns it from someone who isn't you 
so I think uh, some people tried to have like a universal discussion on like what uh, <laughs> on on what it meant, you know, and like you know, set some hard and fast rule. And I don't think there's a hard and fast rule in these situations. It depends on who your dad is, who you are, right? Like what your relationship is like, what mm -hmm. your relationship with your mom is like. It depends on so many different things. It's just, it's impossible to know, even based on the information that you gave, right? It's just not enough information. Right. But uh, in the face of you totally squashing my question, maybe do you have any opinion? <laughs> I, I do take a like more subjective uh, perspective on it, I guess. I think for me, what I would anticipate is that it would just be too much of a barrier to showing up in an authentic way in that relationship for me to have that unsaid. I'm not like, I can like, you know, maintain confidentiality, but when it's like big personal stuff, I'm not yeah. like, it's somebody who enjoys keeping a secret and it, I, it would just selfishly for me be something that I felt like I had to tell them so that I could be myself with them because yeah, it's just, it's just too significant to, to keep that from somebody and then like act as if nothing's happening for me. This question is, um, Aimed mostly at maybe, but uh, if I recall correctly, maybe you've been talking a little bit about like interests in starting a family and things like that. And I remember uh, when I was interviewing Lithros, I think you had some curiosity around that. So since I have both of you here, I was curious if you had any questions for Lithros. I mean, he just had a child recently and, you know, he's he has a wonderful relationship with his wife. I didn't know if you had any family-related questions. Sure. Yeah, I guess the thing that I would be curious about was, like, how how did you, like, decide or reckon with whether or not you were, like, ready to have kids as a couple? Yeah, it's a very different answer for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, I pretty much have infinite confidence in myself. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I have never been in a situation where I felt like there was no ability for me to impact the outcome if I wanted to. And so I said, whenever this happens, I'm going to rise to the occasion. Whenever we decide to do this, I'm going to do what I need to do to be ready for it. So that said, um, we, when we got married, my wife was still working on her master's degree and we agreed we would wait until she finished that to really start talking about having kids. And she took much longer than she needed to, to finish it uh, for various reasons. Not that she's like, not, she, she could have finished earlier if she wanted to, and she just didn't want to put the effort into finishing it earlier. So it's nothing against her. She could have done it whenever she wanted. She just held off. And so we waited a little longer than I expected. And when I started asking her about it, she was very unsure. Uh, she was mostly concerned. I don't want to speak too much for her, but it felt like she was concerned about the effects on her body naturally, which is totally mm -hmm. fair and understandable. She was also concerned about the concerned about the effects on her life. Uh, at the time, she was heavily involved in ballroom dancing. She was going dancing three or four nights a week. Wow. Uh, taking lessons, participating in competitions, all these great things. 
that were really cool and I totally supported, but obviously some of that stuff would have to fall by the wayside. My personal hobbies were a lot closer to home, so I wouldn't have to make as many sacrifices just from having a kid, but I knew it would really impact her ballroom dancing career, so I was very sensitive to that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, she basically was asking the same question you're asking. Like, how do I know that this is the right time? Maybe I should just wait a little bit longer. Maybe I'll feel better about it. And she continued asking that question for like two years. And mm-hmm. there was really no change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, you're always, if you're the kind of person who does interesting things with your life and is ambitious and fills your time with exciting stuff that demands your energy, those things are always going to feel like they're in the way of having a kid because they are. There are probably people in the world who are really boring, who have no problem deciding to just go ahead and have a kid because what else am I going to do? I can watch TV with a kid in my arms. Uh, (laughs) But Mm -hmm. if you have the kind of activities and side projects that keep you busy, a kid's going to get in the way of those. There is no time when you're not going to feel that way. There is Mm. no time when all those side projects are going to fall away because you're probably the kind of person who, if they did fall away, would come up with something new. Oh, my Wednesday night's free now. I can come up with a new project, right? So Mm. you just have to realize you'll never feel ready. And you have to buckle down and say, all right, I'm going to just have this kid and then make the sacrifices I need to make to have the kid because the kid is my priority now. And I think that's where not feeling ready to have a kid comes from. It comes from not being able to project yourself into the frame of mind where everything is subordinate to taking care of the child. And that includes your own personal welfare and interests and hobbies. That doesn't last forever. By the time the kid is five or six, they're much more self-sufficient. They can definitely do their own thing if you need some time to yourself, or they can even get involved in some of your hobbies if they're that kind of hobby. Uh, But for those five to seven years, you're kind of in it to win it. And you just have to accept, I'm never going to feel ready. So I might as well just do it now. But do you think, do you think it's going to be worth it for, for a lot of people or for most people, because I think that, you know, the way people are conflicted on that is, is fairly reasonable some of the time. And I think that for some people, it is the wrong choice. So if you're saying kind of, oh, just buckle down and and do it. um, I feel like there's another way to be looking at this, which is the question of who should not do it. (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, I don't know that I can answer that because I don't know that you can know you're the Mm -hmm. wrong person to have a child until you have one. There are definitely people who should not have children. Mycelium mage. Mycelium mage, I believe would be a wonderful, wonderful parent. Um, (laughs) I wish, I wish mycelium mage was my dad, but the timeline just doesn't work out. So (laughs) if you can't know, I mean, there are obviously some people you can know, like, if you are a pedophile who can't control yourself, please don't have children. Okay, let's Fair. just throw that out there. Uh, but barring those kinds of people, if you can't really know, if you are unsure, you should probably just roll the dice. Even if you're a crappy parent and you're miserable as a parent, 
odds are your children will still prefer to have existed than not to. There are still mm. some children who won't. Sucks to be them. My heart goes out to you. But most people look back on their horrible parents and are still glad they're alive. 95% of the kids that uh, wish they weren't ever born are teenagers uh, under an incredible hormone. So, mm-hmm. you know, they'll, they'll, most of them will grow out of it, too. So speaking of making children and teenagers, how do you feel about sex positivity, Teddy? How do I feel about sex positivity? <laughs> oh, you are throwing me under the bus, aren't you? <laughs> Man, that is a, you guys, whoo. Um, so sex positivity. Uh, so number one, before, you know, I, uh, before I answer this, I'll just say Song of Solomon is a great Bible book. Uh, uh, no, 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 I think, sex positivity gets it like close to being right um the problem is is that um sex is actually way better than the sex positives make out and so sex positivity the 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 thing that it contends with is saying this is really great let's have more of it all the time and as as economists would know, and, and normally I hate economists. <laughs> actually, I flamed actually I flamed yeah. Noah Smith earlier today. Uh, uh, but if you uh, increase something's supply, you end up cheapening it. Um, and so when I see this tendency of sex positivists to uh, want to increase its supply rather than uh, deal with uh, the divine nature um, then I get I get a bad sinking feeling in my stomach so go go in more about that regarding like the divine nature I feel like you're glossing over some nuance here yeah. so tell me okay. tell me more about um, people that that are looking at um, practicing sex positivity sure. and I could be more explicit here but sure. they're they're kind of saying everything is allowable or nearly everything is allowable sure. and that whatever people however people behave that's really okay mm-hmm. and you know it's it's in the water it's in the culture yeah and we shouldn't really be criticizing anyone and we should be really on everybody's side and supportive yeah so I, I don't so for anyone who doesn't know um you know i guess i'll i guess i'll come out as as christian um but everyone who follows me probably has seen some unhinged christian memes at some point on my twitter so they probably know um so when i see sex positivity uh everywhere it almost makes me sad there are I I am not saying like God this is your career you really did be dirty with this one uh, <laughs> so I'm not saying look I'm not saying I'm like sitting out on my front porch like throwing you know stones at the passersby <laughs> who, are, who are holding hands with like their girlfriends right um, but but I think that when when you take something that is so so incredibly powerful. Um, so and so incredibly important for intimacy building um Mm -hmm. 
you really end up and, and make it so pervasive in the culture. What you end up doing is you probably end up ruining a lot uh, of the conceptions of what, of what it means to be intimate within a romantic relationship. Um, and you take away the power. So sex, sex has this like insane power to build intimacy in a way that basically nothing else does. Um, but when you take it and you use and you use it as an advertising tool or you use it as a cheap ploy to get likes and retweets on Twitter, or you use it, um, you, there's you know a million different ways right uh and i'm not like i'm not saying around being like these people are evil for doing right these things like you know i've done stupid things as well um uh i've tweeted dumb things on twitter about it right uh all this stuff but when you do this what you end up doing is um you end up removing it from the context which it's most and best uh useful in and um, not to say that like everything can only be used in the context, which is best in, but you actually end up degrading it from that point. And so C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, That Hideous Strength, um, it, at the last, in his last chapter, uh, ends up sort of doing this thing where he talks about, well, he doesn't, he doesn't explicitly talk about it, right? It's a fiction book, but he ends up showing, um, the the power of physical relations between between a couple as this great act of of bonding bonding and also worship um and so i think when you as a college student you know get drunk and hook up you're you end up almost ruining the the sheer power and intensity of it for yourself um and make it more difficult for you to to rediscover. Um, and then the last thing, obviously, right, is like uh, from the Christian perspective, right, taking it outside of that context is uh, regarded as sinful. Um, and you know, I'm there are many things that are sinful, uh, but I'm doing <laughs> I'm doing my very best to avoid them, even though I'm not doing a very good job all the time. Uh, and so, so that sort of that's a very rambly way of saying, um, I don't believe in in cheapening powerful things. Maybe great. Do you have any any takes or any opinions or any response? I guess the the way that um, it strikes me is that there's this. There's this thing I agree with about like the potential of the power of sex as it relates to bonding and intimacy and even spirituality in all the different ways that that shows up in different cultures. Um, and it's true that I think that it gets commodified and um, sort of twisted in the the pervasive like social media celebrity culture all of that kind of stuff um i guess where i stand on what we're kind of gesturing at when we talk about sex positivity is that in some people i think that there is like a barrier to accessing that potential and that like spiritual experience of sexual life 
that um, people can face because of like a culture that has often been like fear mongering and judgmental about sex in a mm-hmm. in a lot of different people and so i think for them like novelty alone isn't like taking them to that place where sex is like an experience in which they take down their guards and are like raw and worshipful with somebody else and like mm-hmm. that I agree is like a really sacred experience and it's an experience I wish for everybody. And it's a, an experience I wish I had more myself and um, the, the sex positivity that I think is good is the sex positivity that's looking to like change that negative relationship that some people have with their sexualities that keeps Mm. them from being able to experience sex that way. And for me, that does actually include for a lot of people, sex that has become kind of routine or transactional or superficial. Um, I I agree that there's something like much more powerful and intense about how intimate sex can be when it's not something that you're having um, in relationships where there isn't a lot of like attachment or security involved. But I imagine that there might be something about our culture and our lifestyle that actually makes sex aligned with this sort of divine nature very intimidating for us. Like, I don't know that we as a generation can, on average, handle the intensity of sex that's like on this more um spiritually and emotionally connected level um and i i hope that at least some of what we put under the umbrella of sex positivity is looking at changing this whole dynamic in a much deeper way rather than um creating some sort of like um carte blanche permissiveness that doesn't care about healthful relating or intimacy or um, like self-actualization or spiritual views. Um, I, 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 I don't like that stuff either. I, w- I would like to expand on what you mean by can't handle. Like, what, what do you mean by like uh, they, they, they can't handle it or, or what are you thinking of? I think we've become like really atomized and lonely and we sort of interact with the world through a lot of different perspectival filters And to achieve this sort of like transcendent level of intimacy that I think of when I think of like the sacred power of sex, you have to be willing to get really close to somebody on that kind of energetic level where you're not holding them three layers of internet memes in between (laughs) you and them, you know? And I don't think that we have really been raised with like the emotional attunement and, um, openness and receptivity and flexibility that I think that level of intimacy really requires from us. I actually um, agree in two different ways. So number the first way is I think the American church for a long time and still now uh, has done a really good job, bad job about integrating. It sees basically sees sex as like the pathway to sin 
rather than uh, a gift from God. Mm. And it's done a really bad job that side. Uh, and I also agree with maybe on a lot of the things that she said, which is why we should ban porn. <laughs> Lithros, do you have any uh, any thoughts on, on any of this that you, that you want to add any notes? You're asking if I have thoughts about something pertaining to any subject. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that um, I hate to be that guy, but I am reminded of a Slate Star Codex article go figure which is called should you reverse any advice you hear question mark and the idea of this article is that basically um whatever you currently believe you probably have maneuvered yourself into a lifestyle and bubble in which your beliefs are regularly reinforced and that reinforcement is probably to to an extent that is taking you away from a happy medium for that thing you believe um so my it, it the article does not address sex i don't think but the idea i have here is that you know the modal person who believes that they are sex positive and that the divine is not such a deep concern compared to all the other positives that uh sex can have for you outside of emotional intimacy and spiritual connectedness that person would probably benefit from having more exposure to this idea that you need to approach sex with a more sacred frame. Mm. And the modal person who believes that sex outside of marriage is always wrong and that even sex inside marriage is wrong except for specific re uh, reproductive purposes, etc. Yeah. That person probably would benefit a lot from having more exposure to the other side of things, right? So I think that there are certain hard beliefs. You're not going to get around with that, um, like mm. the, the marital uh, confines of sex. Some people are just never going to accept that sex outside marriage could be okay. And some people will never accept that you can only have sex inside marriage. So you're not going to get away from that just by getting more exposure to the other side necessarily, but still being able to appreciate a different view on what sex can be specifically when it comes to less than hardcore sexuality yeah. <laughs> um, can be really beneficial because like particularly in the the context of child rearing, like teenagers have so many issues around sexuality before they ever have sex. And to just be raised told that like sex is only acceptable within these confines of marriage, blah, 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 that may be right and may be correct for one person's approach to things. It may be right overall. I don't really know what is right and wrong in this world. But mm -hmm. giving that as the bottom line to your teenager about sex is not really doing them any favors. Right. So my wife, we met when we were each 14. Her parents were very religious. Mm. She was very religious as well. When I first met her, her career ambition was to be a nun. <laughs> <laughs> and so she was very, very wary about any progress in our relationship that implied certain physical progress because mm. to her mind, you know, if you have sex outside of marriage, that is very bad. Yeah. And doing anything more than you have already done is a step on that road. Right. So we didn't even have our first kiss until we had been dating for nine months. Whoa. Yeah. And that's, that's not just like going place. on dates. That's going steady for nine months, <laughs> which was itself like five months after we started dating. Wait. So how, how, now we were how 17. did you do this? How did I do it? Uh, 
I have amazing self-control and I predicted that this woman was so incredible that she mm. was worth waiting for and Damn. accepting her boundaries, even though I also, to be fair to my high school self, I undervalued myself as a relationship mm. partner. Um, I have been very unpopular in like elementary and middle school. And so I, even though I had blossomed into the charming and amazing person, you know, now, yeah, I didn't realize uh, what I brought to the market. And so if I had known that there were a dozen other girls lined up ready to have sex with me that day, maybe I would not have made such a good choice. <laughs> but I assumed that I only really had a shot with this one girl because <laughs> she was so kind and virtuous and I yeah. was willing to make that sacrifice to be with her. Right. Um, and you made a niche. Right, right. I mean, she is amazing and I'm so glad that it turned out that way. Right. And I didn't know about the possibility of the other options, you know, mm. but that said, it was very difficult. I was very unhappy and frustrated all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, you know, I would make my feelings clear to her because being right. honest about how you feel in your relationship was always a fundamental part of it to me. And you know, over time, you know, we did eventually have our first kiss. I can't say we made no progress in our physical relationship, but we in fact did not have sex until we got married. And, mm. uh, it, it teddy is currently fully erect yeah i <laughs> am i am so hard right now and let me just say parents this is the greatest uh this is the greatest advertisement for keeping your child's self-esteem low that i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> right and so yeah do i feel great about that i mean we probably could have had sex like a couple years earlier we were we had a a three-year engagement or oh. two-year engagement rather and yeah. we had already been dating for six years by the time we got married so like in a long-term relationship maybe it would have turned out okay but if i had walked into that relationship expecting to have sex within the first year the relationship would have been over and i was young enough that i didn't feel like i could ask for that necessarily and i didn't even feel i was ready for it um, wow. my life is not everyone's life so i don't think this should be interpreted as general advice as Teddy wants you to, <laughs> uh, but there are times there are people for whom taking it real slow is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, you know, my wife stopped caring so much about the religious side of things, but I still am grateful to that, giving me the time to get to know her in a way that didn't involve sex and didn't revolve right. around sex. And our emotional connection was strong enough that we were resisting having sex. And there was a level of excitement to that, that you can't achieve if you're just willing to go for it. I've read about that with like um, other cultures that are very uh, conservative about sexual mores and dress, etc. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say it should be the prescription for everyone, but there are benefits to it. And you shouldn't ignore those just because they're inconvenient to your, uh, you know, what people have told you rather about how you need to approach sex and the sense of liberation that you need to constantly have in order to have a positive relationship. Teddy, at the top of um, an article you wrote, I remember you said something like, 
there is no greater tragedy for a nation founded on the never-ending thrust into the frontier than to run out of frontier. And now this makes me think of sex positivity in America, where it's kind of like, if you think of pornography, mm-hmm. even though none of us watch pornography, I'm sure, it, it there's there's like very little frontier left. And um, if everybody can do anything with anyone, then there's very little frontier left. So I, I wonder if this applies to relationships in a kind of way, because the way I'm seeing it now, it's it's the matter of um, the paradox of abundance, right? Where where it's like when anyone can have anything, creating your own form of scarcity and abstinence is actually a kind of like flex. I was wondering if yeah. you have any uh, any thoughts on that. Yeah. So number one, I just. I I am in awe of the fact that you just connected those two thoughts. Like (laughs) I just take a moment to appreciate the fact that you did that. Uh, Yeah. This is actually why I'm uh, in, I would respect the like quote unquote Twitter trads a lot more if they advocated banning all dating apps and cars. Um, So both of those things artificially, uh, increase your access to let's say quote unquote your your community access mm-hmm. and so what happens is so like let's just take dating apps for example uh so dating apps because you have infinite choice uh you end up be it's that you know the very classic you know you're paralyzed by too much choice what happens is is because there's too much or because you feel like um uh, you you already know everything, right? Um, so with whether it's porn, right, or whether it's dating apps or things like this, because there's no limit, so you place no constraint on yourself, or no one else has placed a constraint on you. Um, there's no you lose like the sense of uh, excitement or wonder or any sort of like progress. Um, so let's say like you go on a date with a hinge girl and you don't like the way she sneezed, right? Well, mm. I can spend <laughs> like another month uh, swiping into, you know, like, and right. just like pop up a few more dates. Whereas one of the things that ends up being really nice about things like, um, like actually committing to marriage is, is, you're placing constraints on yourself uh, which allow you to blossom and flourish more fully within that. So for example, the, the easiest example of how this works is when your professor gives, has always like given you essay prompts, right? And you're like, why is this, why is this old dude <laughs> giving me a bunch of boring essay prompts? Right. And then he assigns you a paper and is like, okay, you can write about anything that you want. And then you sit until the day before the paper, right? And you can never come up with a good topic for your essay. Right. Um, it's sort of, it's a very similar idea. And so what, what, what ends up happening is, is because you haven't limited yourself anyway. You haven't like caught, you haven't like established a frontier for yourself and mm-hmm. a set of rules for how you explore that frontier. Um, you cheapen the whole experience. Um, if everything is if everything is open and free, uh, then how valuable can it really be? 
on this point, I think maybe you may have updated your um, opinion or at least your personal approach to polyamory. And um, I didn't know if you just wanted to make any notes or speak about any insights regarding your own life or your own experience um, since we're, we're talking about sex positivity and relationships and all of that. Yeah, well, I guess one thing is that um, in terms of my personal life, I've kind of just noticed that since the pandemic, neither my partner or I have I've been like dating anybody else. And so mm-hmm. it's like I more recognize that we've been living as monogamous couple for the past year-ish at this point. Um, and that we're like talking about more commitment. And that also seems like you know, a a monogamish thing. And so um, I feel like when you make your sex life a big part of your like public personality, it it, kind of feels Mm -hmm. like you set up expectations. And it's nice to like follow up (laughs) with whether or not they're realistic. And it feels like um, the way that things in my life are shaking out after the world is sort of like getting ready to approach some sort of new normal is that it would take a lot for me to want to start a new relationship after everything that's happened. And I'm really focused on like working on myself so I can move forward in the relationship that I've had through this whole experience. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's sort of my priority right now. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, my, my experience has mostly been that like I had totally non-religious sex negativity in my upbringing and it made it really difficult for me as a young person to get adults to help me navigate my experience of adolescence and, Mm. um, to have been able to present, sort of a variety of views in a neutral way and let me like feel them out and have like some sort of autonomy about how I was going to show up to the hormonal disaster that is like puberty. Um, That would have been really helpful for me. Um, I had like experiences that were it kind of outside my control that were really damaging because I didn't have those resources available. Um, so I'm like very open to a huge range of views on like what healthy sexual relationships look like in the world. Um, and I tend to shy away from being prescriptive about those sorts of things just because it's like a subject that has a lot of a shame and B variety around it. And I think that both of those experiences are legitimate. I think that it's true that a lot of people have faced like uh, rejection and um, abuse and um, uh, ridicule based on parts of their sexual life. And that leaves a mark. And when people feel shame about, that kind of stuff it's nice to be a little more sensitive and a little bit more inviting rather than imposing about what you think might be best for somebody like that because ultimately it is their decision and there is also I think a real variety I think that um 
there are a lot of great aspects to the structure of what we might be pointing at when we talk about like trad life and if those are what like is most appealing to a bunch of people they should go do that um but I I don't think that it has some sort of like special moral high ground above other ways of relating to people I think that the things that I find valuable about different relationship structures are all like related around like connecting to yourself and connecting to other people and creating trust and um, learning and growing together and um, sort of being able to use each other as a mirror to find your own values so that you can live a, a life that's like aligned with what feels like really important and true to you um and I don't expect that to be the same for everybody but those are and and I don't expect them obviously to be the same for me like throughout time they change a lot too um so I think that I I try to look for what is healthful and wholesome and connecting about different ways of relating to people and I'm willing to kind of try all of it out to become like a, a better person in my relationship with myself and my relationship with other people yeah maybe I'm really glad you brought up the idea of guidance from adults because I think that a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of the things people express uh, opinions in this arena is really stuff that needs to be heard by parents uh, or at least prospective parents thinking about the the context of how am I going to deliver this to my kid? Because if you're telling a person what their sexual morality should be like and that they shouldn't be doing hookup culture in colleges, you're, you're too late, right? Their, their personalities formed, their attitudes about this exist, and they might have a, a reawakening or a traumatic experience that causes them to change, but their core values have basically been established. So you need to get to them earlier when they're first having these questions if you want to make a real difference. Um, the second point I want to make is that, yes, I, I talked a big game about the intimacy and the excitement and the desire that's produced by abstaining from having sex until marriage or some other moment. But I do have to come clean that when I, the first time I had sex with my wife after we got married was terrible. We didn't know what we were doing. And I was like, I can't believe I waited six years for this, right? So we were total noobs. And like it, we, we worked it out, you know, we, we figured it out over time. I have no complaints right now, uh, but it's just something that has to be addressed. Like someone might not feel like they got what they were promised and that intimacy was not worth the wait if they're not properly prepared one way or another. Um, I was kind of doing things on my own in terms of approaching it from a, a perspective of being patient and waiting for her and everything. And no adult was really standing next to her telling her how things needed to go. So we had to figure it out ourselves. And even though we managed to figure out ourselves into the, the virtuous approach, um, it was only our commitment to each other that kept that from going in a much worse direction after those first few unpleasant experiences. I'm not that it was totally bad or terrible, just like mm -hmm. we we didn't know what to do to feel good. And so it, it took us a long time. And that's just something I didn't want to walk away saying. First time I had sex with my wife was the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. It was more like, what are we doing wrong? 
what is the point of intimacy if this is the best they can do um and you know that's something that just needs that guidance yeah so uh not not super in this vein but um so i was introduced to alcohol pretty early on by my parents uh we like we took a vacation to europe right and the drinking age was different there and they're like look the drinking age is different here you guys gonna enjoy it and you guys gonna have a fun time um and then we got back to the united states like look we're gonna follow the laws for now and then i hit 21 and i started drinking and they like they're like all right you know like uh why don't you like make everybody mojitos right and then uh-huh. I did, and I made my family mojitos, and we drank them for a whole summer. And what ended up happening was, is because like my parents did a good job about introducing us to the concept, of, like what alcohol was and what it was best used for, which was like having a good, having like a glass after dinner and spending time with family or whatever, right? Um, our attitude towards alcohol when we hit, you know, high school at the point where alcohol was being used or college was just way better than i just i just really didn't take alcohol like this big overblown thing that had to be uh had to be used mm. um and so you know i sex is a little different than, <laughs> than drinking a mojito after dinner uh, uh at least the way maybe you want to approach that with your kids um but uh you know there there's there is some real truth in like hey you know if you're a parent like if this is something that you shouldn't be waiting until your kid goes off to college if you like you know be careful at the uh be careful at the frat party so i'm it's very interesting that you bring up alcohol now in this context because my mom tried to get me to drink before i was of age uh and i was not interested so She'd be like, hey, you want to have some wine? And, and then she didn't start super early. Probably I was 18. Um, like, do you want to have some wine with dinner? And I was just like, no, I'm not interested in drinking. I never drank in college. I didn't start drinking until I was like 26 years old. And I I saw how, I mean, in, in high school, I was like, well, it's against the law. So I'm not doing it because I was that kind of cool guy who eventually became a lawyer. And uh, then when I was mm-hmm. of age, it just never really appealed to me. And I, when I turned 21, my mom was so excited because she would finally have someone to drink with. Right. And she's the kind of person who just has one or two glasses of wine every night. So she enjoys the social aspect of drinking, not to excess, but just likes to drink convivially. So she poured me a glass of wine and she handed me the wine and she doesn't have the best taste in wine. And so I <laughs> sipped it and I was just like, this is gross. I must drink this. And she handed me some, you know, her, her supermarket cheddar cheese and said, well, just try it with some cheese and see if you like it. And I tried the cheese and I was like, it makes the cheese taste worse. No, thank you. So I'm just saying, <laughs> I agree with you that like everything you said about your parents approach to stuff makes a huge impact, but there may be some people like me who just aren't that interested in certain things. Mm-hmm and are predisposed to have an easier time abstaining from them. I like to ask a question on every podcast since a certain podcast aired, and that is whether you are enlightened. So, uh, Teddy, are you, are you enlightened? Hell no. All right. What, maybe, Gray, are, are you enlightened? Absolutely not. What about you, Lithros? Are you enlightened? Sure. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> 
Yeah, so I have passed through the stages of spiritual attainment uh, that result in being able to access a state of mind that is commonly agreed upon is the uh, standard for counting as minimally enlightened. There is no real limit to spiritual attainment, at least none that any spiritual guru, etc., has ever identified. You can continually pass through these stages uh, and achieve higher levels of this consciousness every time. I have only achieved one time, so I'm kind of a baby enlightened person, but mm -hmm. I have absolutely gone through the uh, concentration and insight the practices necessary to unlock all these various stages. So what is the experience like? Uh, it, the point of the experience is unfortunately that you can't really describe it in words. So no matter how I say it, it's not going to be that satisfying. Mm -hmm. When you have achieved enlightenment, I mean, I know that you are on your way and you have described your experience of timelessness in detail on Twitter and on podcasts. And it's, that is a big part of it, but mm -hmm. there is more to it than just that. Um, there's also coming to grips with the fact that those realizations themselves are illusory and that there is in fact nothing to do any perceiving. Um, once you have completely dispelled the illusion of duality and attained complete oneness within oneself and perceiving something about the shape of the universe and everyone's place in it, which is a requirement because everyone is the same one. Um, then you become fully at peace with those ideas and all ideas. And as long as you maintain that state of consciousness, which is not effortless, um, mm -hmm. you basically drift in an infinite void of quietude, which is really relaxing and chill. So is this pervasive for you? Like, is this your every day or is it something you can like access with, with some ease? Yeah, I, it's something I would need to access and it's definitely significantly more accessible than it was before I got there. Like before you hit that level, you're always kind of reaching for it and not really knowing exactly what you need to do. And once you have done it and remember the steps it takes, it is much, much easier. But in order to maintain that state of consciousness, you do have to avoid being dragged down to the level of the physical and emotional and intellectual things, which can easily distract you from it. It requires a perfection of concentration to maintain that mortal bodies cannot uh, stand for too long at once. But having the memory of it and, and knowing what it feels like still stays with me at all times and is why I feel comfortable saying, yes, I am enlightened. All right. I want to return to this, but Teddy has informed me that he has to go soon. So while he is still here, I would like to ask him what he thinks about magic and the occult and all this stuff. I know he's a Christian, I, I, but I don't know what he thinks about any of this. So, so Teddy, please tell me. Yeah. Um, so I think probably contrary to a decent amount of American evangelicals, I'm I'm pretty convinced that a lot of this stuff is is real. Um, I don't really have a big problem acknowledging 
that this stuff really does happen. Um, uh, which might have something to do with the fact that a lot of my friends are Catholic. Catholic. <laughs> uh, so, however, I get really nervous when, and this may explain a lot of the way I tweet and a lot of my political beliefs. I get really nervous when I start, when people start looking for uh, ways to access power that they don't understand or aren't maybe in control of. That that starts to ring some real alarm bells for me, um, and I am firmly firmly in the camp that the spiritual realm is very, very, very powerful and, and very little understood. Um, so when I see um, people on Twitter talking about magic or uh, any of that stuff, I don't necessarily uh, doubt uh that many of the things that they're talking about aren't real or anything like that. But I do get really nervous when I see people messing around with stuff like that because um, humans looking for access to power is oftentimes a really, really good way for them to step into areas which are really bad for their soul um, because whether you like it or not um, many people don't have a good grasp on what it is that they're doing and um, the search for power in and of itself is a um, does end up becoming a a weakness uh something to be attacked and something to be exploited um so that's that's sort of my in in a in a very short way that's that's where my reticence i think uh, and i wouldn't say outright hostility uh because i the people that are doing it are obviously wonderful people but that's that's why um i don't like the idea of the practice of magic Mm. Um, yeah and chaotic thinking by liminal warmth um she speaks she talks to people on her podcast about magic and magical practices and she does her own practices and i find that to be very illuminating because she actually talks about exactly what you're talking about about the dangers that this is super dangerous that people by and large, should not be messing around with this at all until, unless it's like you're so driven to do it that the the risks to you are not that bad. Because like even Oops, if sorry, you died, I broke my mic. You broke it. Ooh. You okay, bud? <laughs> he he might be on the ground. Well, that's one way to excuse yourself leaving early. <laughs> Uh. well i am just going to forge ahead okay so what the what the fuck was i saying uh magic okay so yeah chaotic thinking by liminal warmth she talks a lot about the dangers of magic and why most people shouldn't do this all of that said 
I think maybe Gray is probably the most playful, friendly, open, and yet humble proponent of tarot that I have encountered. And I, I think she practices it with its due respect. And if you wanted to, Teddy, mm. she could do a reading for you answering a question of your choice. Okay. Can I ask can I ask a, a dumb question? Just uh sure. just like something really stupid. Would that be okay to to do a tarot reading on? Well, I mean, what about the state of your soul? Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I really don't think I want to hear anyone hearing about the state of my soul on a podcast. <laughs> 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 it's already in enough trouble as it is. Um, well, could could we possibly do one on the uh, the future of my Twitter account? Is that a is that a reasonable oh, yeah. thing? All right, okay. I'm I'm excited. And you can do as many draws as you want. Yeah, do you want more than one card, or what do you think? Oh, I don't know what the typical protocol for well, this kind of thing is. Yeah, well, let's do okay. let's do one, and then we could do maybe we'll do another question. Okay. Sounds good. What will be the future of Teddy Rackerville's Twitter account? Mm-hmm. Oh, I got the King of Cups. I think that's kind of sweet. Um, so the cups are one of the four suits of the minor arcana. The major arcana are like associated with big life events. The minor arcana is, are related to the energies with which we live our everyday lives. Um, and the cups are the suit that re- represents sort of our emotional lives. Um, and the kings, uh, the, the king of the emotional suit um, is kind of like the highest masculine representation of working with that energy. So that's sort of the technical background of what the King of Cups would be like. It's the it's the the watery court card. Um, and so in terms of what that might reflect in terms of the future of Teddy's uh, Twitter account is that I could imagine you finding ways to be a little bit more like honest and authentic and vulnerable in the terms of your uh, Twitter account, but in a way that actually really honors your your masculinity and your like most deeply held values. Um, and, and maybe if, if this is what the tarot would choose to show you, that's something that you might've thought would have been something you had to find some sort of compromise around. But I think you're, you're capable of finding a way to like have both. God, I can be, are you telling me I should become more vulnerable on my Twitter account? I can't be more vulnerable with my parents. This is going to be a fun activity. No, I, th- I think I think she's saying you, you are going to become that way. And that's just a forecast. Do you have another question? Uh, I'm going to defer to Lithros. I think Lithros maybe, oh, okay. uh, maybe had some questions. I do have one. Um, uh, and actually, I have two. The first one, I'm not sure you're going to be willing to do a reading for this question, maybe. So... If okay. this seems like it's Spicy. gonna, it's not that exciting. But if it seems like it violate <laughs> the spirit of the tarot, you just let me know. Um, and I'm asking this question because I have enjoyed liminal warmth stone tarot readings a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, but some of the readings I've been given, I haven't been sure about. So okay. my question for you is: Is it a good idea for me to live my life based on what the cards tell me to do? Can you do a reading for that? Oh, yeah, sure. That's a fun question. 
Very meta. Dang, the cars, the the cars oh. themselves are meta. That's crazy. <laughs> the cards are like this, like they're this, like like almost like a talisman. They like have this ability to channel some sort of like goopy, soupy intelligence that's out there in the world that is not me. I have my own deck right next to me, but. I'm, I'm going to oh. meet you a lot more experienced than you guys me. Are, so you guys are degenerates. Play. I hope you know that. <laughs> you want to hear how much of a degenerate I, I am? I, I love I, you guys. Well, I'm a degenerate. That's the thing. I have a Homestuck-themed tarot deck. That's how much of a degenerate oh, I am. Dear Lord. <laughs> <laughs> oh. See, I'm comfortable calling everyone else degenerates because if you've read anything that I've ever tweeted, you would understand that that comes from a deep place of love and sympathy. <laughs> All right. Oh, this is really fun. Um, the Eight of Cups. Oh, I feel like tarot cards are cheeky. <laughs> okay, so the Eight of Cups is an image. I didn't describe the King of Cups because it's like a king with a cup sitting on a throne. That's what's up. It's like the exact image you had in your head when I said it was called the King of Cups. Um, eight the number doesn't evoke really the imagery that goes along with the eight of cups. So I'm going to describe it a little bit more. The eight of cups is an image with like a full moon in the sky. And there are eight cups uh, stacked around the bed of a river and a man in a red cloak with a walking stick is leaving. He's heading into the woods and you only see his back. Um, And so to see this imagery as an answer to should I live my life by the cards is sort of like, um, no, you have this nature that will be driven to seek out what it is that you need. And you don't need the tarot cards for that. Um, you are going to go after whatever you are meant to learn in this life. Um, but it, I get this sense that it's kind of like poking fun at you. <laughs> well, I'm poking fun at it, so it's deserved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does have a cheeky feeling like it's like, hey, if you don't want my help, why ask me about it? <laughs> <laughs> Man, right? But that's the, that's the cool thing is it's like such a perfect answer <laughs> because all of the ways you can interpret it are kind of kind of nail it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. You're very welcome. I'm actually this is this is an in between right here because I have to use the bathroom real quick. But I wanted to say thank you to Teddy. If you have any final notes, Teddy, any anything to sign off? Sure. Yeah. Um, I know that you said you had considerably more notes. Uh, I'd love to do this again. This was this was really fun. Um, yeah, we're f- figuring. It yeah, out. I, I I won't break my mic next time. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, any final any final thoughts? Any final notes? Um, uh, despite being incredibly skeptical about literally everything in uh, basically any community, uh, the post rationalist community. Being and me being more skeptical about the post-rationalist community than normal communities mm-hmm. still manages to be a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, this podcast, I think, is a good good example of how you can be uh, skeptical, uh-huh. 
uh, while also really enjoying the community itself. So thank you, Teddy. Of course. That that means a lot to me. And yeah, I I think Mm -hmm. I, one of the reasons I invited you three on this show is because I think you're all a lot of fun and I could probably say anything and you'll (laughs) you'll make it awesome. (laughs) So I'll, I'll, I'll say this one last thing. Uh, and then I'll, and then I'll sign off. Uh, uh, time is real and enlightenment is not. Uh, and so you guys could, uh, there you go. Have fun with that. Thank, thanks. To yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. All right. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. This is super fun. What a dick. Yeah, you hear that fucking guy? What the, what the fuck does he think? He's got a lot to learn. He's got he's got a lot to learn. <laughs> but okay. he he didn't say anything bad about tarot. He just came out for you guys. <laughs> he, he didn't say a single thing about magic or or maybe. Yeah, I am unscathed. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to use the bathroom real quick. Great. So let's take a let's take a two or three minute break, and then we're going to get back in. Beautiful. We're going to get back into alignment. We're going to get back into magic. Great, be back in a couple minutes. Sounds good. <laughs> I am back, and uh, so I I would like to delve into the alignment thing more deeply because it's quite a claim. It's quite a claim, but uh, I've got plenty of questions. But before that, I just wanted to invite maybe that if you're if you're skeptical or if you have any questions for Lithros, uh, I'd prefer if you got to them before I got to them. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I mean, um, my my boyfriend, actually, who I've been with for five years, he is very into, you know, the path toward enlightenment. I I got a religious studies minor in my undergrad. I've like read about this kind of stuff, but sitting down for two minutes makes me mad. So I don't do it. <laughs> okay. uh, so he's made a lot more progress than I have with that attitude. Um um, I, from the outside, um, from that experience, and then also in general, find it very difficult to tell what enlightenment is, why someone would want it, if somebody has it, what changes about somebody who makes it to that point. None of it, like, on a deep, resonant level makes sense to me. It, like made sense to me enough that I got like an A in Indian philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) But that's totally different than like getting it. (laughs) So I'm 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 very open to your perspective and I don't I don't presume to know anything um in any real way about the whole topic. Okay. Well those are great questions. Um I will say that to start off with there is no way to tell if someone is enlightened. And most spiritual professionals or really high-level amateurs who talk to each other spend a huge amount of their time gossiping about whether X person is or is not truly enlightened, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So a good sign of someone who is even further along the path is that they've kind of gotten over that first attitude. Um, There's just, you cannot tell. You enlightenment is not a thing that you can say a, a password and prove that you have it. Um, it is a purely internal experience, 
And once you have gotten there, you can say certain things describing your experience that make people more likely to believe that you're enlightened. But mm -hmm. they, you could just be repeating something you heard someone else say and getting close enough that no one can really tell. Um, as far as why you would want to be enlightened, when you achieve that level, you will feel as if you understand a deep and intuitive truth about the nature of the universe. If the truth to that level about reality is important to you, then enlightenment is a good way to go about getting there. But you will not be able to convey that truth in words or any other communication to anyone in a way that matters. <laughs> so <laughs> all of the communicative abilities that you might be able to use to impress people about how wise you are, etc. Even if you are able to convey the experiences in a way that is really impressive and convincing and makes people believe that you have this wisdom and level of knowledge about the nature of the universe, the ability to communicate that is not tied to enlightenment itself. It's a separate ability. It is a persuasive ability, a poetic ability right. that you could easily practice and develop on its own without ever becoming enlightened. And plenty of people do that. There are a lot of fake shamans, etc., right. who are just really good at seeming enlightened. Um, and they make whole businesses about it. So it's, it's no way to indicate. You might have somebody who is a complete doofus and unpersonable and you don't believe a word they say. There's no way to know they're not actually enlightened. There are certain things you would expect an enlightened person probably wouldn't do, um, like be too obsessed with any specific article of desire, for instance, but nothing is absolute. And as long as we're tied to these physical bodies, we're going to have drives and desires. And as long as we're tied to our emotional and intellectual selves, we're going to have other drives and desires that always work against that unity of consciousness and uh the the things that you can't stay in that state all the time so even the most enlightened person in the world is probably going to have their moments where they slip up and seem less than impressively perfectly wise and in self-control mm. and a lot of it is also a kind of seeming too right it's like if you desire to seem a certain way that is also a desire and yeah. this gets into and, and you're talking about how someone can be like really obsessed about a desire and this reminds me of in jed mckenna's book he talks about how he's not sure what he's going to do after he's done writing the books but one of the things he's considering is getting addicted to crack <laughs> and and like so you can actually imagine someone that's like totally at the top of enlightenment or whatever that's finished and then being like oh i'm gonna fuck around and get totally addicted sure. to crack why not just to yeah, be right to just to you know see like test the boundaries of their experience of life now that probably seems if someone is not educated about this stuff at all, what I am and Lithros are saying is probably completely insane. <laughs> but, but, um, but actually, when I had my spiritual experience, um, which was enduring, um, I was trying to talk about it. And um, I actually, in the back of my mind, I thought I was going to run my Twitter account into the ground. I was like, it's worth it, but uh, no one's going to like me after this, but it's what I got to do. <laughs> so, so I was just completely unhinged and somebody messaged me and, and told me um, 
to stop talking to them because anyone that had reached any heights in spiritual attainment would have a certain kind of poetic language. And um, I responded by saying, okay, thanks, man. But <laughs> in my head, in my head, I was like, well, even, even reasonably, like from the outside, you can see why that wouldn't be true because you, you don't need to learn language or you don't need to learn like a certain kind of magical communication in order to have a deep experience of your own life, mm-hmm. right? Those things are completely unattached and actually teaching any, uh, anyone else to be enlightened is completely unattached from being enlightened yourself, right? Those things do not go hand in hand. And the only reason people think they do is because they're learning from people that were very good at communicating about these things, right? right? Because everybody that didn't speak about it poetically, though their words did not survive until today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's what I would say about that. I, I am always a little bit curious about um, what other people are experiencing generally and i'm i'm not always thinking like i wonder if they're enlightened but i do wonder like what any like what anyone else is experiencing behind their eyes you know because it can be uh, it it could be crazy who knows even just the fact that maybe they're not seeing color like something (laughs) that mundane is kind of mind-blowing one of the reassuring things about going through this spiritual progress is that along the way there are specific steps specific insights and specific attainments before the final enlightenment step Mm -hmm. that are common that people can describe with words and to experience those things and then go and read other people's journeys and and see they're doing the same things is really reassuring and helps you with that and as an Mm -hmm. example of this not from my own experience which was entirely disconnected from anybody else but when you were going through that unhinged phase Mm -hmm. um I was in a DM with someone else who will remain nameless, but who is a, a spiritual a person of some spiritual attainment. And they were like, hmm, Critter's really going nuts. He's just going through his arising and passing away. So once mm-hmm. that's done, he'll be, you know, he'll be where he needs to be and stop being so crazy. And then like a few <laughs> days later, you found the, a book that discussed that exact thing and identified that as your experience. So someone of a high level was able to identify that's why you were struggling to express yourself this way. And it's cool to me that there's that level of consistency between such complex and different minds. Yeah. um, I'm still figuring out the flavor. (laughs) I'm I'm a different place now. but it's definitely the case that after your experience, you're not the same person in any like you're, you're a deeply different person and you see other people in a, a deeply different way. And and um, it's it's a lasting kind of thing. And I can go I can go deep into that, but I would prefer to ask a question, which is uh, you, you talk about this process. Um, I, I want to know a little bit about what your process was like and when you went through it or why you went through it. Yeah, when my, pro- my process was very atypical, I think. And um, generally speaking, when you're talking about enlightenment and the spiritual progress, it's a combination of two things. And you need to have a level of concentration ability 
and you also need to deeply contemplate questions about existence and your own self and identity and perception. Mm -hmm. And those don't have to be done at the same time. They are two separate tracks that when you combine them together, you are able to make spiritual progress. And so uh, I started out with the concentration practice very, very young. Like I mentioned my father dying and it was basically after that um, I started mm -hmm. to dissociate at times and just like go into a nowhere place. And I noticed that was happening and I decided to double down on it and see like, how long can I maintain a, a sense of nothingness? And mm -hmm. I got pretty good at it. And I was able to basically blank out my mind and experience nothing for minutes at a time. Um, and that was when I was like, you know, four or five years old. So that I didn't know what I was doing, but that was the equivalent of that concentration training. And I have always kept that ability and been able to do that concentration. And it's kind of like learning a language in the sense that you don't really know you're doing it when you're a kid. And then mm -hmm. to come back to it as an adult and try to learn this whole new way of approaching a thing, as maybe said, she gets angry. If she tries to sit still. Mm -hmm. And like for me, I'm able to get to a place where I'm not even able to comprehend what anger is because I've blanked out my brain. Can you describe this in different words? Because what's coming to mind for me, and I, I feel like it might be a different thing, is that I can view everything I do as if I'm watching it on television, like even even my feelings or my everything. So I can be like working or struggling through a, a thought problem or anything, and I can merely watch myself do it effortlessly. But I'm not sure if that's the same as what you're talking about. Um, I don't think it's quite the same. Uh, because the effort doesn't really come into it at this point. It's simply a way of framing your mind. It's like how mm. I'm sure you've seen those kinds of optical illusions where if you look at it one way, a person is spinning around counterclockwise. And if you look at it a different way, they're spinning around clockwise, right? And what is the actual cognitive me mechanism you need to undertake to get the direction to switch, right? Mm -hmm. and, and not everyone is able to do it at all. And I think that's the same for this kind of concentration. But there is a way you can trigger your brain to frame that situation differently. And when you get good at it, you can do it on command. And to me, it's the same idea for entering this nothingness of concentration where I'm basically telling my brain to, well, I'm not telling my brain to do anything. I am envisioning nothingness and then I am touching the nothingness and then I am the nothingness. So mm. once that nothingness is fully envisioned and imagined and, and connected to, there's no more steps for me to take. I'm just there for as long as I can avoid the mundane physical and intellectual distractions that would pull me away from it. How does ego come into this? Um, because I feel like ego is a, uh, an important component. And I think that one of the main effects of this kind of spiritual, whatever you want to call it, is that you begin to see yourself not interacting with people as much as with egos. And because you, you see the ego is kind of separate from experience in a weird way that I don't know exactly how to talk about. But um, so for you, where does ego come into all of this? Ego interacts with the process in a lot of places. If we're just talking about the, the concentration side of things, 
then if you are in a stage of high consciousness about your own identity and self, for example, if someone said something really insulting and rude to you and hurt your pride, and you're kind of nursing that pain, then your ego is really pronounced in that moment. It's going to be very hard to ignore the distraction of that and concentrate on the, the emptiness that you need to be able to concentrate on in order to make any kind of spiritual progress or connection. So ego will serve as a distraction. If you're too in touch with yourself and focused on yourself and how you're feeling personally or the things that you want to the extent that it's distracting you from ignoring them, (laughs) then that's going to be a block. It also comes up on the other side of things. Uh, It comes up on the insight side. And it's very important there because a big part of the insight training is to contemplate who you are and how you relate to the universe and how you are different from other people or objects or concepts And what is the nature of your mind that is experiencing the world? Mm. So I won't say that ego gets in the way of that, but at a certain level, if you are too in love with the concept of yourself as a discrete individual who is divisible from the world, you will not be able to make any more progress. You have to give up that attachment to your own personal identity and individuality in order to continue along the track. I've been paying a lot of attention to my concept of like spiritual progress. So as I'm quote unquote spiritually progressing, I'm realizing that it's not my spirit that's spiritually progressing. It's my ego. That is like, because one spirit does not spiritually progress. It's only that one does from the egotistical error, like uh, the egotistical point of view, Mm -hmm. which makes me think like there is no spiritual progress. And like, this is a really silly thing to even talk about. But uh, you mentioned spiritual progression. But I feel like the concept of spiritual progression only serves to edify the ego, right? Like, that's all it does. It doesn't it doesn't make anyone superior to anyone else. Yeah, progression in the sense of moving in a specific direction, but not, not necessarily in a superior direction. There are, as I said, people who are almost constitutionally incapable of this kind of enlightenment process. And I don't think that makes them any worse than anyone else. I've mentioned this and talked about a little bit about neurotic people that I think people that are neurotic actually probably have a much more difficult time with any of this. Um, I, I, I could play the devil's advocate and say that that might make it easier for them to access this because the harder you have to work at something, it, it makes you like develop a, a deeper practice. But aside aside from that, you know, insane argument, I would just <laughs> say that a neurotic person is going to be more attached to their ego because they're more defensive and they're, they're more sensitive and they feel their ego more heavily. And I think this is also true for psychedelics. Do you have anything to say about that? Psychedelics is an interesting point um, because I think that you can kind of sidestep a lot of the progress needed to reach the same sensations that enlightenment contains uh, through taking psychedelics. I have not taken any. I have never used any drugs other than alcohol and caffeine. So Mm -hmm. I could not speak to the experience of LSD, DMT, whatever, uh, psilocybin. I've done a lot of research about them. Um, I spent 
a fair chunk of the past year working as a freelance occult researcher for Liminal Warmth. And one of the oh, books cool. she had me research was about uh, spirituality and uh, psychedelics. <laughs> so I probably know as much about psychedelics as anyone who has never used them could possibly <laughs> know. Um, and specifically as regards their ability to put you in that altered state of consciousness that can be taken as, uh, if not enlightenment, then something very close to it. Mm. I have my own reservations speaking as someone who has gotten there without using any drugs, although I think it's a lot harder. I feel you can't really trust insights that you have received during a psychedelic mm. episode. I think that the function of psychedelics is to work magic on your epistemology and make you mm. more ready to believe certain things are true without needing them to cross certain standards of proof. <laughs> um, and if, as you're saying, what our spirit knows is constant and we are merely peeling away layers of ego to get to that, maybe that's okay, right? Um, yeah. Maybe if you destroy the ego with drugs or you destroy the ego with intense spiritual meditative practice, you're getting to the same place in the end. But I still would never personally be able to rely on any insights that I had received from drugs because you can also destroy your mind and perceive things that are totally insane. And how would you ever know the difference? Why do you believe one way or another? So that's just my suspicion of drugs, though. People seem to do pretty well with it. I will add the the quick footnote that um, one can also destroy their mind with intense concentration practice. Like there 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 are dragons there, and there is madness there, and uh, you should not pursue quote unquote spiritual progress if you are afraid of madness and losing your mind because that is a true possibility. Um, but it may be great actually. But yeah, point well taken. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so maybe great. Please can. Uh, any notes, any thoughts, any perspective, whatever you want to share? Um, I guess uh, what, what comes to mind for me is that um, psychedelics, I think, can be really interesting catalysts for work that you're already doing. Um, but I think the less connected it is to um like self-development practices that you already have in place that are already like integrative um mm -hmm. the more it can be like destabilizing more than it is a fruitful experience um and i don't know i guess like i come to that from a perspective of somebody who like struggles with traditional mindfulness practices um and has found like this other route like helpful in like taking baby steps towards having this sort of i don't know relationship with myself that would make mindfulness practices feel more accessible to me um but uh, yeah i i i definitely respect the perspective and um I've definitely in my life moved away from like lighter, more recreational interactions with those kind of substances and like increasingly um, put emphasis on like set and setting and intention. Um, and so 
that that's kind of where I'm at with all of it. So I will, I'm actually kind of in, in between here because I, I know at least a little bit about what Lithros is talking about. And I also have done psychedelics. I can say that there is a definite difference, um, between the two experiences that is very, very significant for me. And I've had, um, multiple uses, but it, a lot of people have smoked weed. So I can talk about that, that, um, when people smoke weed, a lot of the time they feel extremely present. And I think this is an experience which is extremely common for people in a lot of different situations, especially like during sex, maybe during sex, you are um, just so in the moment feeling, not thinking about the past, not thinking about the future. And in that moment, the future and the past don't have any reality to you because you are completely being right? You are completely experiencing. However, you do not learn from that, that there is no time, right? Even though you're, you're merely experienced in that moment. So we do, we all access this presence um, regularly. And psychedelics, I find, um, kind of dial that up a little bit, where you experience this deep presence for for long stretches and um, the things you experience are very vivid, which, which reflects some, some degree of, of spiritual attainment. But the thing is that like the hallucinations and everything aren't like, I don't imagine that Lithros is experiencing hallucinations all the time. Like that's, that's not what really it's about. The, the, the hallucinations are fun, but the thing about presence is more closely tied to spiritual attainment. However, in my experience, the vividness and the onness and the absolute electricity of the moment that you can experience day after day after day unceasing um, for weeks makes anything like LSD seem extremely weak um, because the degree to which you can be engaged effortlessly with the present moment it, it just really, I, I've, I've done my share of drugs and it, it just makes all drugs pale in comparison because when you're in constant curiosity and awe and joy and when literally every single moment is, is lit by the fire of your gratitude for being this component of consciousness in the world, it's, it's like there's, no, there's nothing that compares to it. It's, it's really quite incredible. And... Um, it's difficult. It's difficult really to describe, but you could be in an extremely mundane situation. You could be at work. You could be in a boring conversation and you could just have an idiotic smile on your face because you're having such an amazing time seeing the newness of every single moment. It, it's uh, it's something. It's definitely something. Yeah. So I described how my traumatic childhood led me to be very good at the concentration side of things but that didn't actually give me any benefit with the insight side of things. And I didn't mm -hmm. know that my concentration abilities had anything to do with enlightenment. I knew that there was this idea of enlightenment. It interested me the more I heard about it as I grow, grew up, but uh, Buddhism in general just seemed like this curiosity. And I was interested in philosophy as well, but the specific questions that interested me most in philosophy had to do with more like the ethical side of things and less the nature of existence. And I just didn't dig into that too much. But mm -hmm. when I was about 20, 
26, 27, I read a biography of the Buddha. Um, the one I read was actually a manga by Osamu Tezuka. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and it was wonderful, a wonderfully told story to begin with, but it also, you know, brought a lot of these issues of um, existence and the nature of reality and perception to the forefront. It didn't go too deep onto any of those, but it made me realize that there was a place where I could go to explore this stuff. And so the more I learned about those Buddhist teachings, the more I got better and found direction in terms of doing that kind of insight training. And once I applied that to the concentration side of things, I made very, very rapid spiritual progress. And I became extremely insufferable <laughs> until I got through it all. So um, it was, it, most people don't come into it with that level of concentration practice ready to go. So it takes a lot longer because that's mm. very, very hard to develop, especially when you're getting excited and interested in these ideas and trying to do them at the same time is hard because you can't be too interested that it distracts you from the concentration. Um, mm. But the, the things that I've read and what's consistent with what I believe is that if you are dedicated and get really good at these concentration abilities, and you also focus your time and dedicate yourself to contemplating these insight questions of the nature of reality and the self and perception, et cetera, you will inevitably make spiritual progress as long as you continue to do those two things side by side. Uh, the book I would recommend for anyone who's really interested in this is Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha by Daniel Ingram. I read the book well after I you know, achieved enlightenment, but it was consistent with everything I had personally experienced. And I thought it was really amazing to see it all just written out like that. So it is a step-by-step -step guide and I highly recommend it. I have a question about this because in Buddhism, it, it seems they practice a form of virtue ethics, which doesn't really resonate with me regarding like <laughs> wisdom and um, like kindness. I, I'm, I'm actually blanking on the virtues, but uh, so does that resonate with you? Because my concept of virtue is different. I am not terribly impressed by the ethics espoused by most Buddhists. And even the ones that the Buddha said were important don't all have great yeah. and deep meaning to me. There's some contradiction in there because on the one hand, the point of Buddhism is supposed to be escaping from suffering. Right. Um, on the other hand, one of the major points of Buddhism is accepting suffering as inevitable. Mm. So to that end, certain acts, which would be unethical in the sense that they cause beings to suffer, even unnecessarily, you might be fine with them if you reach a specific level yeah. of spiritual attainment. I think that most of that advice is intended for people who are still on the way. Yeah. Yeah. I have a theory about this. And um, I don't know if you've read McKenna. If, if you've read, if you haven't read McKenna, I actually suggest that you do. I, I would m much enjoy your perspective on him. And he's also a very easy read, but um, essentially he just describes two different people. And one of them is enlightened and the other one is spiritually mature and the spiritually mature individual, for instance, like does not heavily experience ego, does not have any beliefs, um, does not deeply identify with anything. And so this describes a kind of spiritual achievement that very few have 
And a lot of people think that fulfilling these things is enlightenment and maybe they become charlatans about it <laughs> and, you know, start teaching things. But I don't believe any of that is sufficient to, to be enlightened. I think in, enlightenment is not having a, a clean ego or, or, a, or a, a, uh, a pretty ego, but it's having like no ego. That mm-hmm. you 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 kind of become almost I wouldn't I don't want to say mechanical, but you, there's very little pass through between experience and experience. It's everything you know is very consolidated. Anyway, um, this is this is how I picture it. Anyway, for the record, I'm not enlightened. I, I don't espouse that I, that I am enlightened, but I just have had interesting experiences. And um, so all, all of this is just to return to the idea that the Buddha is probably teaching different people different things. And I, I think he knows in his writing that the writing that he is writing to the people that are less experienced is going to be taken by the people that are more experienced as the teaching for those other individuals in the same way that, you know, if you're in an English class and you're masterful and someone makes a side note about grammar, you're going to be like, oh, okay, fine. You know, sure. Like I know who that's for. It's not for me. I can, I can fuck with grammar because I <laughs> rock, but you know, I, I get that's not for me. Yeah. I agree with all that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's useful. Um, so to go, to, to, to get back on the ground of earth, uh, <laughs> you, you both have some experience with law and I have no experience with law. So I've tried to talk to both of you about law a little bit, but I thought it would be better if you asked each other questions about law, because for instance, Lithros teaches it and maybe, um, just, I actually don't, don't understand the echelons of law, but you <laughs> achieved something recently. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so I imagine that, um, you may have questions for one another. So I just wanted to invite you to speak about either law or the ethics of law and et cetera, please. Uh, maybe I've been doing a lot of talking and if you ask me a question, I'm just going to keep talking. So I would like to ask you a question first, if that's okay. <laughs> okay, for sure. All right. And excuse me if you have answered this somewhere else and I missed it. This is a question that is near and dear to my heart as someone who teaches law and business ethics and legal ethics. Do you think the law is in its nature a tool that serves the interests of those in power or is it something that does more to restrain the excesses of those in power and therefore protect the people not in power. Oh, I definitely think it's closer to the former than the latter. I I think overall there is like a homogeny of perspective um, among the people who have had the power to like do legislative drafting and that kind of thing. I think that like ethics and philosophy seem to be very slow to influence legal thinking, um, which seems to be much more like precedent driven. Hmm. Um, and I guess, um, from my philosophy background, 
um i picked up on ideas like those of like Foucault's and those seemed like elegant and like truthful to me like that um power has like this organizing force on institutions and society and that um when you look at the results of those institutions through that lens they match up a lot better than when you look at the results of the institutions through the like purposes they espouse hmm. themselves as having like prison doesn't seem to be rehabilitative and law doesn't seem to be like hooked into some sort of like natural justice that's out there in the world and um this this like um idea of power dynamics seems to fit better with the things that i've studied um in my undergraduate degree and in my law degree more than like i don't know this uh, this idea that like law is a noble profession <laughs> i hear you i went into law school wanting to be a prosecutor and I came out of law school wanting to abolish uh, incarceration. <laughs> Not necessarily <laughs> prisons, but just like I, I basically no longer believed that there was any real societal purpose in locking up anyone except the most ridiculously violent people. Yeah. So why do we? Uh, I'm, I think that a question that was asked on the thread about what we should talk about saying um you know why are laws bad so often and i said it's because they're written by casuals i wasn't actually joking like i don't think that our legislatures um in in you know common law western democracies are really designed to pass good laws i think they're designed to pass laws that are fair in how equally bad they are to everyone and that includes, you know, obviously the, the rate at which we incarcerate various groups in our society is not equally fair to everyone. Um, but there's a lot of other issues in the United States, at least, that uh, are factoring into that besides just how the laws are designed. Um, that said, like, we, we lock people up because we feel like we have to do something. And there are a lot of forces uh, with incentives to lock people up. The police, the prosecutors, the prisons, they all feel good about it. And there are very few people who want to stand up and say, you know, we shouldn't treat prisoners so badly. You can get a lot more votes by saying you're hard on crime than by saying you're merciful. It seems to me that countries' laws are a kind of program, like a computer program, However, the programmers have a lot of incentives to try to hide the bugs rather than fix them. I think they have incentives to add bugs. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe you have a different attitude about Canadian law and government. Um, no, I mean it. The it definitely feels like there is a duplicitousness to the politics behind legal culture and um what like canadian parliament puts into law is genuinely like it it's generally 
enforced to the extent that it is like mm. convenient for the the political powers that be to enforce them like uh we 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 don't have residential schools anymore but the overrepresentation of aboriginal children in welfare is enormous which is sort of like we've shifted to doing the same thing that we won't let people call cultural genocide in a a, a socially acceptable way that like puts it on aboriginal families that are like obviously suffering lots of intergenerational trauma and that feels like it captures this like weird duplicity of canadian legal culture where on one hand there is like absolutely binding canadian law that like our country has a fiduciary relationship with aboriginal culture and like their total unwillingness to behave in line with that kind of strand of legal reasoning that it does affirm as legitimate. And so it, it, it it's frustrating. Like that's just one example of a lens through which you can cut through the like hypocrisy of Canadian law. Um, but there are many others. And I think that they are common to a lot of the, the Western common law. Uh, nations yeah the news coming out about the residential schools has been horrifying and it makes you wonder how much other stuff like that they're doing that just hasn't come out yet say more about this news for everybody including me that has no idea what you're talking about yeah well i mean i don't remember I, i i don't know exactly what the location was or anything like that but somewhere um on the grounds of a past residential school they like found a, a, a children's cemetery um, with like hundreds mm. of children buried there. Um, and so for a lot of people, that was a really shocking discovery. Um, it, I think that it was like probably in the like early times that the Canadian government was definitely aware that there were high rates of mortality at the residential schools and they didn't really do anything about it but for most of our our like mainstream culture it is like shocking to learn how many children died at residential schools um even though that was like that was a reality that the nation knew about for for dumb americans what's a residential school um when it was like a colonial tool to assimilate um people from mm. Aboriginal cultures into the Western culture uh, when settlers came to Canada. So children were just like taken from like whole communities and made to go live where they received like Christian schooling. And the, yeah, the quality of living was really terrible. And there was really high rates of like abuse and mortality um, and a whole generation, many generations really, of aboriginal people were cut off from any like cultural parenting practices they like just grew up without parents and the the legacy of that experience for their culture has been really really damaging and it gets minimized all the time that sounds terrible and uh final question is what do we have to be optimistic about in the future, especially as it concerns 
countries and 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 law and uh and our children you want to go first maybe i'm going to talk yeah okay well i guess what what comes to mind for me is like having i'm in like a graduating class of a law degree right now and when i think about the people that i went to um emergency pandemic zoom law school with uh they are bright skeptical compassionate people who don't seem to assume that law is like this unassailable um moral institution in society uh and that's really encouraging to me i think that the people who want to study law today seem to me from just my own anecdotal experience to be people who are hoping to cause friction in the places that maintain systems that aren't just, that just kind of feed into power ruts that are already there to begin with. Uh, And I think that the more people within the profession that are willing to kind of, um, put up some resistance to playing the game of power the way that it has usually been played, uh, the the more likely that the norms of legal culture can be shifted um, in the general public too. I felt very similar to you when I graduated from law school about my classmates. And uh, the passing of time has not borne out those hopes and aspirations. So... I am very hopeful for you (laughs) that your crew manages to hold on to the spirit of uh, justice that managed to escape us. Uh, I'm sure you'll do better. However, I am optimistic for (laughs) other reasons. Um, So I basically see, once you move past the core function of law as reinforcing the um, whims of the people who have power, which I do think is the core function of law, Um, I think that the secondary function of law, when it comes to controversies that the people in power don't really care about, the core function of law is to try to fairly distribute sparse resources. And that could be anything. Um, But you're going to generally see that if you're dealing with a problem between two groups that don't actually have enough power to have influence over society and the way laws are created, the courts are really going to try to come to a fair outcome and not an outcome that's necessarily in service of a guiding principle beyond uh, trying to, you know, make sure that the people who need more have what they need. That may not always be in line with what some people's ideologies would say is justice and fairness, but I think that is basically how the system works. Um, That said, I think that our resources are every successive generation becoming less scarce and with the advancements of technology and the ability to do things more cheaply that used to be very expensive thanks to the materials science and developments on the internet etc i think that we're in a better economic position than we never we've ever been in before and therefore um, the law should be able to more easily divide up resources in ways that wind up helping people Um, again, a lot of the people who are in power, I think are motivated by, uh, absolute resource limitations rather than relative ones. Obviously there are many groups that see power as a zero sum game and only care about the relative 
power distinctions and dynamics. But for those who are concerned with absolutes, they will have more to help them feel satisfied as well. So it just is going to take the pressure off the system in general. I don't have a specific timeline for how I think this is going to go, but I think over the next 30 to 50 years, especially if we manage to get better uh, nuclear going again or make any progress with fusion technology for power generation, the, the law in general is going to go do more, spend more of its time helping people who have been harmed and less of its time harming people on the behalf of those in power. Awesome. I'm going to wrap it up because we've been, I actually have no idea how long we've been going because we, we have so many recordings. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I wanted to thank Teddy who is not here to say you're welcome rip. And uh, <laughs> I want to thank <laughs> Lithros, what a gentleman. Maybe Gray, you are phenomenal. Not only that, but you have another show coming up. So I hope we have sufficiently warmed up your <laughs> your voice and your ears. But anyway, thank you so much, Lithros, and maybe for being such wonderful guests and giving me so much to think about. I love it. It was a great time. Thanks for having us. Thank you to Lithros, Teddy Rackvelt, and maybe Gray for creating this episode with me. Thank you to Frank IV for making me this wonderful new music. Thank you to Foreshaper for the art. And I will see you next time. Let's, let's hear that intro one more time. This is a becoming creature.